Hello, and welcome to Pieces of History. I'm Colin McGrath. This week, I'll be looking at Martin Luther, Holy Roman Emperor Charles V of Spain, his son Philip II, and the events that brought about the Dutch Revolt of 1566. To discuss this with me is Heather Darcy. Hi Heather, how are you? Thanks for having me. And how, how's things over in the States? They are as exciting as always. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, well, I'm excited to talk to you about the Dutch iconoclasm today because I feel like we're seeing something similar over here mm-hmm. in the U.S. and also perhaps in Western Europe with the cultural changes that are going on and reevaluating the statues and the different uh, artwork that we have displayed in public spaces. Of course, it's it's all it's all, it's all irrelevant, isn't it? Um, so. Before we actually go into a deep dive then, so can, can you tell me a bit of, bit of your background then? Yeah, so I have a Juris Doctorate. When I am not doing history things, I'm actually a practicing attorney, and I've been an attorney for, I think, almost nine years now. And I have a Bachelor of Arts in German Languages and Literatures, and I am working on finishing up my Master of Arts in Early Modern History, and I focus on the Holy Roman Empire, particularly what we think of as Germany now. And additionally, I have a website, maidensandmanuscripts.com, and I'd be happy to give you links to that. And you can also find me on Facebook and Twitter. And I just started an Instagram, but I'm not very good at Instagram yet. <laughs> and perhaps most relevant, um, I'm also the author of Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister. There are a few a few copies of the hardcover still left, and the paperback comes out later this year. But I researched Anna of Cleves from the German perspective. Mm-hmm. And I'm now working on my second book, which is due out, I believe, next summer. It's called Children of the House of Cleves, and it looks more at Anna's family, particularly her brother, Wilhelm, who became Duke, and also her elder sister, Zabilis family. And when I was researching for the second book, I kind of learned a little bit more about the Dutch iconoclasm by accident because some of the territories that are now in the modern Netherlands were actually part of the United Duchies of Ulich, Cleves, and Berg. And so Wilhelm, Anna's brother, was having some issues. So I thought, oh, I should look at this. And then it was very timely. So um, so how did the iconoclasm come to your attention then? Is it through your, your research for Anna? Yes, yes. That and also I was reading a book for class, interestingly enough. So I had kind of started to look at what was going on with Wilhelm on his brother, and that popped up, and then it popped up again and kind of brought everything full circle for me. So the, the main book that I was reading is called Beggar's Iconoclast and Civic Patriots, The Political Culture of the Dutch Revolt by Peter Arnaud. So for anyone who's really interested in this topic, I would suggest reading that book. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Um, and then also as well, you, see, you seem to enjoy the political and legal history then. So can you, can you tell me more about the, the politics in the low countries? leading up to this period? Yes. So there are a couple different elements and I'm going to try and organize them as best I can. So there was a tradition of something called the joyous entry. So whenever the monarch or the leading noble would go into any of the main cities like Mechelen or uh, Brussels or something like that, you would have this festival to celebrate the person coming. So some examples of joyous entries would be when Charles the Bold married Margaret of York. And actually that joyous entry is still celebrated, I think, every five years. And I think the next one is in 1523. So just a neat little fact there. Or when Maximilian of Austria came when he married Margaret, or excuse me, Mary of Burgundy. 
Um, and then later on, when we get into the 1500s, you had a few of those with Prince Charles, who became Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and Charles I of Spain. And then moving up to 1549, there were a whole bunch of joyous entries with Charles V and his son, Philip II of Spain. And starting perhaps with Philip the Bold in the early 1400s, and then particularly with Charles, or excuse me, Philip the Good, not Philip the Bold. His son, I believe, was Charles the Bold. I'm mixing up my... my uh, sobriquets here. Um, <laughs> but so Charles really started to kind of mix the secular and the religious together and make the Dukes of Burgundy almost appear as though they were religious figures. And moving forward to Maximilian of Austria, so he became the Duke of Burgundy, Jure Uxora. So by the right of his wife, he married Charles the Bold's only child, who was a daughter named Mary of Burgundy that I mentioned before. So Maximilian, who of course then became Maximilian I as Holy Roman Emperor after his father passed away, absorbed Burgundy. And then his son, Philip the Handsome, married into the Spanish royal house. Philip died early. And Charles, the young Prince Charles, who was raised at the Netherlands court. Sometimes I say Niederländisch because I'm a German speaker. And in my brain, that's the proper word to say. So I will try to say Netherlands, but I might say Niederländisch. Um, anyway. Maximilian's grandson, Charles V, became the next Duke of Burgundy after the death of his father, Philip. I hope all that made sense. So that brings us from roughly the mid-1400s up to the uh, right around 1519, 1520 or so, when Charles V is the Duke of Burgundy, the Holy Roman Emperor, um, the King of Spain, etc., etc., etc. He just had a massive amount of territory by right of his birth. And then you, you mentioned before that this had obviously a background in the Reformation as well. Yes. So when we look at what was happening in the Holy Roman Empire, of course, the Reformation had started. The German Reformation started in 1517 with Martin Luther posting his 95 theses. And we have to keep in mind that when we're looking at the Reformation, yes, there is a very heavy religious component, of course, but at the beginning and even up through the time period that we're going to be talking about today with the Dutch iconoclasm that led to the Dutch revolt in the 1560s and 70s, being pro-reform meant that you were anti-empire. So the Holy Roman emperors were very, very Catholic, and they wanted to keep their ter- territories very Catholic. And Charles V's son, who was Philip II of Spain and later became held the territory of the Low Countries, he was also very Catholic and very interested in maintaining the Catholic status quo. But in the meantime, you have the development of the Lutherans, the Protestants, the Uguenos or Huguenots in France, and the Calvinists, and just a whole bunch of different religious sects. I can't Mm -hmm. ever say that word right. Sect. There you go. (laughs) And if if I'm just going to backpedal a bit, actually, because um, where I am, Martin Luther isn't really a figure um, who's well known in Ireland? So, how how is Martin Luther kind of looked at in Germany and the, the Netherlands and things like that? It depends on who you ask. So that's a very good question. So Martin Luther, he is the founder of Lutheranism. I don't think he meant to do that. So when he posted his ninety five. I'm sorry, I'm going to back up. So Martin Luther originally was going to be a lawyer and he was riding Mm -hmm. through some horrible storm and he prayed to, I believe it was St. Anna and said, hey, if you save me from this horrible lightning storm, if I survive, I will become a monk. 
And that's what happened. And he had become tired of various indulgences. So that was when a person would pay money to the church to reserve a place for themselves in purgatory, I believe it was. And that was somewhat of a flagrant abuse of religion. There are other things that were going on on that Martin Luther didn't like. So he went and posted his 95 theses on the Wittenberg, um, or Wittenberg, sorry, that's more that German accent stuff coming out, Wittenberg uh, Chapel, Castle Chapel door, which wasn't a really weird thing to do. So it was very common that if people wanted to have religious debates or theological debates or just types of debates, they would post their points first in preparation for the debate. So I know that um, at least in American Lutheran culture, a lot is made of this, you know, this rebellious posting of these 95 theses. It wasn't rebellious. That was normal. But what came from that was within two years, Charles V, who became Holy Roman Emperor in late 1519 after the death of his grandfather, Maximilian, Charles was elected Holy Roman Emperor, um, he was really ticked off about this. And there was a lot of, there were schisms starting to happen within the empire. And the Wittenberg is in the electorate of Saxony. And so within the Holy Roman Empire, you had, I think it was, it was anywhere from seven to 11 electors at a given time. And I believe under the reign of Charles V, it was 11 electors. And it was their job to elect the next Holy Roman Emperor. So they would get together, kind of like what you see when a new Pope is elected. These specific individuals get together and decide who the next Holy Roman Emperor would be. And the current elector of Saxony, Frederick the Wise, he was kind of a more passive character. And so he was a little interested in Martin Luther's teachings, but more importantly, he ignored, he kind of turned a blind eye to what Luther was doing. And so we go, come to the Diet of Worms in, I think that was early 1521. Luther is just, or excuse me, Charles V is ticked off at Luther. He doesn't like what's happening because, again, anti-Catholic also somewhat equates to anti-Hapsburg or anti-Holy Roman Emperor. And he wants to put, Charles V wants to put Luther on trial as a heretic. And Frederick the Wise is like, no, no. I don't think that's legally right because Frederick the Wise was really, really into reforming the legal system in Saxony and also kind of coming up with a more unified system overall. And so he never really, Frederick never really had the chance to properly interrogate Luther, but Luther was interrogated at the Diet of Worms. Luther's allowed to leave. Charles V has an edict issued against Luther that would result in his arrest. So then Frederick decides to kidnap Luther and hide him from the emperor, mostly because Frederick was ticked off that Charles V stepped on his toes or his legal jurisdiction, basically. So that's who Martin Luther was. Um, and that's mm -hmm. kind of what was going on in the 1520s in the electorate of Saxony. And then Luther Lutheranism just spread from there. So after Frederick the Wise, his brother, John the Constant, became the elector of Saxony. And John the Constant had a very, very abrasive personality, or at least was very abrasive against Charles V. And John's son was named Johann Friedrich. Johann Friedrich married Zibilla of Cleves. So that kind of brings it back to why I was, I've been looking at some of this stuff for, for book two. So Johann Friedrich is very much in favor of Lutheranism and the Lutheran Reformation and also establishing the autonomy of Saxony 
I don't know that he ever really meant to boot out the emperor wholeheartedly, but that's kind of what wound up happening. So in the the late 1520s to early 1530s, you're seeing all these different Protestant leagues forming where they're agreeing to join against the emperor, basically, or at least defend the autonomy of the independent dukedoms and electorates and princedoms within Germany. And that's really where you start to see this, this development of the, of the anti-Habsburg. I guess you could even call it a political party. I don't know that that's an appropriate term given the time period, but that's a way to look at it. And, um, so Zabilla of Cleves and her husband, Johann Friedrich, were kind of at the head of it. And then over in the United Duchies of Jülich, Cleves, and Berg, you have Anna of Cleves' brother, Wilhelm, who was never actually a Lutheran. He never became a Lutheran at all during his life. He was he was okay with some reforms, but he was mostly religiously neutral. And he later on in his reign, because he reigned from, I think, 1539 to 1592. So he reigned as Duke of Cleves for a really long time. He softened his stance a little bit, but he was never a Lutheran. But um, so you have Wilhelm, who has his own reasons to dislike the emperor, who's also not necessarily pro-Lutheran, but anti-empire. So I hope that kind of paints a background of what was going on with who Martin Luther was, what his reforms or his proposed ideas, how they impacted the Holy Roman Empire in Germany, and then kind of led up to this anti imperial party and also the development of Calvinism and the Uguenos and things like that. And like so- socially as well, um, could you maybe touch on like, how life for say the, the normal person was in, in, in this time period as well? Was it, was it kind of like a, a essentially like for the man on the street, so to speak? So I think I can answer the hierarchy question the best. So I'll start with that part of your question. Okay. Looking at the Low Countries, so that would be modern-day Netherlands and Belgium and a small portion of, I think, Germany, actually. Mm-hmm. You had the Duke of Burgundy, who was your main leader. The Duke of Burgundy, for what we're talking about today, also happened to be the Holy Roman Emperor. But you had the Duke of Burgundy, who owned just this massive territory and was a serious threat to France. And a lot of modern France used to be the Duchy of Burgundy, but this is a pretty huge piece of territory. So you had him at the head, and then you had all these nobles, so these various dukes. So in some areas like the Holy Roman Empire or like the Dukedom of Burgundy, you didn't necessarily have a king, but you had a prince that ruled over everything. So you did have a a political figurehead. And then it would kind of trickle down. In Germany, you still very much had the feudal system alive and well, even up through the middle of the 16th century and possibly beyond that. Whereas in England, they had kind of started to move away from the feudal system. So Mm -hmm. some people had a very hard life, some people didn't. And for the common man, it just kind of depended on your lot in life. I mean, some people were farmers and you start to see the commercialization of farming in this time period. So a movement away from subsistence farming, which was common until around 1500s to commercial farming. So people didn't have to just be farmers to take care of themselves. They could go to the market and buy their food if they needed to. And in the low countries, they had a pretty, pretty, a couple pretty decent sized ports there. So there was merchant activities. And so a person could be a wealthy merchant potentially, but they didn't have very much political power. So they formed guilds within cities to kind of have social clubs, but also to protect their economic interests against the outside forces, I guess you could say, so against the ruler of an area or even 
the rights of perhaps a German trading mm-hmm. or German merchants versus in that are present in the low countries versus the rights of the the merchants in the low countries. So does that answer your question a bit? Of course, yeah, it does. Um, I was I was just going to lead on next to um Philip the Second then as well. So how was he looked upon by by the nobles at this time within the Low Countries? Not very well. So his father Charles was raised in I believe it was Mechelen, but he was raised at the court of his aunt um, Margaret of Austria, Duchess of Savoy, and that was. Maximilian the first daughter. And so he was raised at court there after his father, Philip the Handsome, died. And he spoke French, and I believe he spoke Flemish, and he even spoke a little bit of German. His mother was Juana, the, known as the Mad of Spain. So he was also half Spanish. He wasn't considered to be very much of an outsider because he had adopted a lot of the Burgundian court rituals, a lot of the the culture there. So he behaved like a Burgundian, you could say. And when the time came for Phil, or excuse me, for Charles to step down, he's getting older. He was born, I think, in 1500 or 1501. I can't remember off the top of my head. But in the mid to late 1550s, he was getting ready to step down. And so he had decided at one point, I think, actually, we should go back to 1549. He had decided, I think, by 1549 that he was going to give the Low Countries to his son, Philip, who was now also um, the Prince of Spain and was going to become Philip II of Spain upon Charles' death. And then Charles kind of handed over the Holy Roman Empire to Charles' brother, Ferdinand, who became Ferdinand I. So there's that division there. With Philip, Philip was very, very Spanish. Philip had never really meaningfully spent time in the Low Countries. He grew up in Spain. His mother was Isabella of Portugal, who was, I think, a first cousin of Charles V. So Philip wasn't really comfortable with the French language, from what I can tell. I don't believe he meaningfully spoke German, and all of his manners were very, very Spanish. His court, there's a report I read from 1551, Uh, by a Venetian ambassador, and I can't remember who the ambassador is off the top of my head, but Philip's court in Spain was structured the same way the Burgundian court was in the Low Countries, so there was that similarity there, but you also have a lot of the same officials in the Low Countries were officials in, in Spain. So Philip, when the reins were handed over to him to be the Duke of Burgundy and be in charge of the Low Countries, he just didn't quite fit in, and he was very, very foreign. And the the nobles didn't really like that. Um, and so <laughs> in 1549, there was a bunch of these joyous entries of Charles V and Philip II into Spain. They went to Antwerp and Brussels and Bruges and a few other places. And Philip II kind of hung out in the Low Countries for a couple years and everything was fine. His father, Charles, was kind of the glue that held everything together because Charles really understood this need or this... Uh, very concretely established culture of these joyous entries and just these grandiose things that combine the secular and the religious in the culture of the Low Countries. And Philip, I don't think he really cared. I think he was more Mm -hmm. interested in being in Spain. Philip was an intelligent person, but he was a bit more of an introvert than his father Charles was. So Charles V steps down. He retires from everything. Philip's in charge. Philip basically, as soon as he reasonably can, decides to leave the Low Countries. So that was not a good move. So essentially, that part of his empire, as far as Philip was concerned, was kind of 
far flung. He didn't, yeah, obviously, like you said before, he, he spent a few years there, but it wasn't really his main concern. Obviously, Spain was his his sphere of influence, essentially. And did Philip have maybe a lot of, was in touch really with Italy, Switzerland, that, that type of area as well? Yes. So Philip's older sister, Margaret of Parma, was an illegitimate child of Charles V. Margaret's mother was a Dutch or a Flemish servant at the court in Mechelen, and that's how they met. And F- Charles did later recognize Margaret as his daughter. She was sent to Italian courts when she was about 11 years old, and she married, I think first she either married or was supposed to marry a Medici Duke of Florence, and that person either passed away before they were married or shortly after they were married. And then she went to Parma and married the Duke of Parma. And Margaret, as a person, decided to speak Italian for the rest of her life as her primary language. So she spoke other languages, but she adopted Italian as her primary language. And there was almost a tradition, you could say, of the the Habsburgs putting their sisters in charge of the Netherlands being the governess or the region or whatever words you want to use of the low countries. Of course, low countries being Belgium and the Netherlands. I know I'm kind of mixing those words together, but Netherlands does actually mean low countries. So that's why I keep mixing them. But anyway, um, so again, Maximilian I put his daughter, Margaret of Austria, Duchess of Savoy, installed her as regent. Charles V had his sister Maria become regent. And now Philip II is having his sister Margaret become the regent of the Low Countries. And Margaret, again, very foreign seeming person. She's very, very Italian at this point. And Philip was, he wanted Catholicism to just be the religion throughout all of his territories. And in the Netherlands, there were a lot of different religious groups, I guess you could say. You had the Calvinists, and I think there might have been Mennonites, and maybe a little bit of the Anabaptists, but those were not very, it was not a very big party, a very well um, recognized party, I guess you could say. But uh, in other words, there are a lot of non-Catholics that were establishing themselves in the Low Countries, and they were a bit flagrant about it. So have you heard the term like a hedge priest or a hedge sermon? Are you familiar with that? Uh, no. Okay. So there were no churches dedicated to these non-Catholic preachers or religious groups. And so what would happen was pastors would go outside and they would, or in the country, and they would preach there and people would gather. And so hedge, of course, means bushes. So that's where the term hedge priest or hedge sermon came from, is these people would go gather somewhere outside and have their sermons there. And Philip II really, really didn't like any of that. And so he was trying his best to put down everything. And Margaret of Parma, his sister, kind of didn't have as much power as you would have expected. She didn't really have much of an army that she could command. And also Philip had sent the Bishop of Granville up to the Low Countries in 1561. Nobody liked him up there. So he got booted out in 1564. So she's kind of on her own with all this. And was Margaret left to her own devices, essentially, then? Like you said, she has no standing army. She has no, she has no protection, really, from Philip at all. Yeah, that's exactly right. And she was all right with taking a more moderate stance on the issue with religion. And so in, I think it was in earlier in 1566, April, I think, of 1566, a bunch of the 
Dutch nobles went to Margaret and said, hey, we really just need you to chill out with the religious prosecution. I mean, obviously they didn't say it that way, but that's that's what they were getting at. Um, and there were about 250 of them. They marched to her palace. They were led by Louis of Nassau and Brederode, I think. And this would this would have been a terrifying sight for someone like Margaret. Like she's just doing whatever she's doing in her palace. Here's 250 people marching to her palace to come talk to her. That's a little terrifying. So they meet with her. And to calm her down, one of her counselors said something along the lines of, don't be afraid, madam. They're only beggars. So Mm. these nobles meet with Margaret. They come up with a compromise of nobles or... um, excuse me, that was the compromise of nobles, actually what the nobles agreed upon to make this party to go talk to Margaret. But they, they come up with some sort of religious compromise. As a tongue-in-cheek joke later on, the nobles are celebrating their victory of having some sort of moderation or moderate tone towards non-Catholic religious groups. And so they decide to call themselves the beggars, or the, I think it was Gutzen in Dutch. And they adopt some symbols that were very common to beggars. So that one of them was a wallet. Another one, I think, was this type of badge or a hat. So you'd see a lot of political like woodcuts of people wearing these, these wallets and, and so on and so forth. So there is now what can kind of be looked at as a political party that is against the Habsburgs. And it is inside the Netherlands. So this is this is a serious threat to Philip II. So Philip, so this I'm is, sorry, go ahead. This is the start, really, Heather? The start, yeah. So this happens about four months before the iconoclasm starts. Philip was not happy with, with the establishment of religious moderation. Margaret, of course, was afraid, so there wasn't really a whole lot that she could do. And Philip doubles down on his efforts to persecute what he viewed as heretics. And some of the ways that people were executed were pretty gruesome. So keep in mind that executions were very, were most often public and it was to try and deter people from doing whatever the thing was that was being punished. So they became pretty gruesome. And there were some times when the, the Dutch, I don't know if they can even really be called rebels, but the, the, the Dutch Protestants would there was one incident where they like broke into the jail and freed some of their people who were supposed to be executed the next day and there was there was times when the dutch protestants would do things to like the scaffolds or whatever and just make it so that the executions could not take place so philip ii was not happy with any of that one, one of my other questions really was so what was the treatment of non-catholics obviously you've mentioned by the executions but um in regards to society, were those people ousted from society, from noble positions, from industry, economically? I don't have a good answer for that. I don't think that at this point the the Catholics were viewed as enemies quite as much as what you would see in Paris about 10 years later. So just to go on a bit of a tangent, I think that there is more overall violence with the wars of religion in France or leading up to the wars of religion in France, which I think were in the 1570s. And so there was a lot more Protestants or Huguenots or Ugueno versus Catholics. And you would see a lot more of this violence and you would see specific areas in Paris, particularly that were owned by the Uguenos or that's where they concentrated their businesses. There was also various battles that had been going on throughout the country or what you could consider the country, the modern country of France leading up to the wars of religion. So there was a lot more, I would say, 
open violence from what I can tell. I'm certainly not an expert on the French wars of religion, so I could be a little wrong. But from what I can tell, there was a lot of more open violence and ostracism of Catholics in some ways than what was happening in the Low Countries. And that's partially because Philip was being so strict. And I think the Dutch leading up to it were being a little more careful. They weren't in full-blown open anti-Philip II mm-hmm. behavior. Yeah. And then I want to circle back a wee bit. What, so what happened to Margaret then? Margaret was removed in 1567 after the iconoclasm. So the iconoclasm took place between right around August 4th, I think, or certainly at least August in of 1566 up through about October of 1566. Philip was mad that Margaret wasn't able to put it down. So he removes her from the Regency and and establishes the Duke of Alva in 1567. And the Duke of Alva was, he was a brutal person and he established, I think it was called the Council of Troubles, but they, they killed a lot of people and they tried to root out or route a lot of people. And eventually you then have the Dutch revolt. And I'm not going to get into that a whole lot, but there's the Dutch revolt 17 provinces break off, and there you have it. So Philip's main goal did not did not work very well. But mm-hmm. that's what happened to Margaret. Uh, so Heather, um, just in regards to the iconoclasm, obviously that really kicked off after the Dutch Revolt as well. Um, I think maybe it's time we we cut this off, this episode here, because that's a fantastic breakdown you've done so far over the last uh, 60 years of Dutch history. And I think we, <laughs> we, we should come back for a follow-up. What, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a good idea because I think that the iconoclasm really did. I think that's recognized as what kind of kicked off the Dutch Revolt. And I, yeah, I would really like to do that. And maybe we can compare what was happening there a little bit to what was going on in Paris too. Perfect. That's great. Thanks very much for your time this week. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to next time.